All right, Judges chapter 2. There is a very sad example of what the book of Judges is all about, illustrated in Judges 16 through the life of Samson, who is one of the judges. Uh, the lesson of Judges will be, as I mentioned in the prayer, disobedience to God brings defeat. And here's this uniquely gifted man, highly favored with the grace of God, great privileges, and he really represents us because um, we have great favor with God and supernatural ability that God gives us based on our relationship with him. And so he really is a type of believer. And he has a life of steady compromise, as most, most of you know, and willful disobedience. He's constantly flirting with danger. Then enter secret agent Delilah, kind of secret agent for the Philistines, seducing him and getting him to give up his secret to his strength. And he, in the past, had been making up a lot of little things. Well, it's this or it's that. And then she would try to do those things, and the Philistines would be called to get him. And then at that moment, he would arise, and he would shake off their chains or whatever it was, and he'd gain the victory. Well, three strikes, and he was out, and she finally got him uh, to admit and, and uh, what the secret to his strength was, and really was his uncut hair, his vow to God, and uh, he decided it's time to go all the way, take the plunge, step over the line, and boom, in come the bad boys. He tries to bust free, as he did in all the times before, but the power plug was pulled, and the Lord is grieved and gives him over to the enemy that he loved to flirt with. Judges 16, verse 20, really says it all. Then Delilah called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not realize that the Lord had left him powerless. And Samson was in for a terrible and painful experience there. And so, really, that is going to be sort of the theme of this 400-year period that Judges describes. Um, Israel is kind of unplugged from the power in this vicious cycle called the sin cycle, which you will see repeat over the 400-year period in 21 chapters, you will see it repeated seven times. It always begins with the same line, and the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. Then you know we're on the ride again. And what happens is they get fat and sassy, and they decide we're smarter than the Lord. We figured this thing out. We've done really good. We're, we're his chosen people. And so we're going to take a little chance here and dabble and compromise and walk over the line. And then the Lord unplugs the power of their blessing 
in comes the enemy. They get chastised. They're in painful distress and suffering. And they call out to the Lord. And the Lord raises up a judge, and not in the judge sense of the, a legal sense that we think. The Hebrew is rescuer or deliverer. He also judged, but his main job was to rescue. And so while he was rescuing, they were repenting and crying out to the Lord. And the Lord would always have compassion, restore them and they would be good during the life of the judge. There were 15 judges you'll read about. Six of them are minor that nobody really knows much about, but there are about 15 of them listed in this 21-chapter book. And so the Lord uh, works through the judge, and as I said, then they get, what, fat and sassy again. Look, we're all delivered. Our enemies are subdued. We can dabble again and disobey and cross the line, and boom, it starts again with the line, then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And seven times a merry-go-round over and over again. The presumed author, as I mentioned, Samuel, really, in these opening two uh, chapters, is laying the foundation for this 400-year period of, really, the dark ages of Israel, as I mentioned last week. And what a contrast to what God's heart is for his people, and especially in the New Testament revealed through Jesus. John 10.10, I came. The reason I came was to give you abundant life not mere existence. Also, you can just be in the rat race and make a bunch of money and get married, have kids, and die. You know, that's not why I came. I came to give you a rich, meaningful, blessed life. John 10, 10, and John 8, 12. Whoever uh, follows me shall never walk in darkness. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. You will have the light of life. And here they are, 400 years, God's people, Walking, stumbling around, groping around in the dark. John 15, 11, I came so that you would have joy and that it would be full and my joy in you. And so what a contrast, terrible. So from chapter 1, we saw last week where we've gathered it's going to be a rough 21-chapter ride, because eight of the 12, as we saw last week, for context for you who missed last week, eight of the 12 tribes decide that partial obedience is enough. I can mostly obey, just like at the altar when he says, you know, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? <laughs> and you say, mostly yes. Uh, that's not going to work, like I said last week. And so eight of the 12 tribes say partial obedience is, will suffice. The problem with partial obedience, of course, is that it is disobedience. And since the source of Israel's power is the Lord, and it's generated by right relationship with their God, disobedience will cause a major power outage. Zechariah 4.6, not by might, that's not by your power, that's by my spirit, says the Lord. And if you want to be so foolish as to step on your air hose that supplies you with the oxygen and the power, the grace of God that comes down from heaven through that hose, you want to be dumb to tie a knot in it, you're asking for trouble. And so we're going to learn vicariously through Israel's dumb mistakes not to make those same mistakes ourselves. Verse 1. One through five here. The angel of the Lord 
went up from Gilgal to Bochum, which means place of weeping, and we'll see why they named it that, and said, okay, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have, re you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare, a trap to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept out loud, and they called that place Bochum. There they offered sacrifices to the Lord. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, pulling the power plug. The blessed life, as we find uh, quite frequently and have mentioned this, has some conditions to it. Uh, now, Israel's status is God's chosen people, and your place in Christ really has nothing to do with you but the favor of God, in that, yes, you did say yes, but that's all you ever did to earn anything from God. You just accepted a free gift. But the enjoyment of that free gift called eternal life and life with the Lord depends on obedience. You'll never get around that. That's just the way it is. And so verse 1 says, Look, I will never break my covenant with you, but you've broken it with me, and that is going to create some problems. As Deuteronomy 30 note, notes, uh, the Lord speaking, If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, if you love him, obey him, and keep all his ways, then you will prosper and be blessed. And so that, that's, those are kind of the, the rules of the road with God, is that we can't merit his favor, but, but in order to enjoy his blessings, we walk with him. We don't grieve him. We don't do the things he hates. We don't applaud when evil happens. We don't join in his enemy with his enemy. We don't do the things that he died to save us from and expect blessing. So the war really is won, but the battle rages on here in the promised land. And so while the back of the Canaanites has been broken, and we've seen that with the book of Joshua, each tribe had to continue the fight with their pagan neighbors, all the Ites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites. Whoops, I added a little vowel in there and didn't do the Gergesites right. But anyway, all of those ites, as we talked about last week, uh, one writer called it, and I'm sorry, it's a little vulgar to say, but pus pockets of moral depravity. That's what the Canaanites were, of perversion and filth and moral um, evil, immorality. And so the Israelites, as with us, have to cooperate with God to really push back, to have this constant tension of obeying the Lord, and through the Lord's power, he would subdue those people, and those people and their gods would not have a negative impact on them. Now, as we've mentioned, 
uh, the Canaanites and those pockets of resistors are really pictures of our sinful nature and our besetting sins and our spiritual enemies that we have, like they, an obligation to exterminate those things. Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So God's command strategy to them, drive them out, exterminate them, zero tolerance, do not compromise with them, do not cut a deal with them, do not cut them slack, do not put them to work for you, do not negotiate with them, and do not marry them, do not partner with them. What about these commands is unclear to you? And they did those things. He's saying, why? They will hurt you. Their gods will be a snare to you. They will be a deadly trap to you. They will be thorns in your side and in your eyes. Thorns in your eyes. Stinging whips to your back, as we saw last chapter. He said, please don't do that. I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I'm trying to stop you from hurting yourself. You think that you want these things. They have an attraction. Your sinful nature is misguiding you and lying to you and telling you that this thing is the answer to your problems. This thing will bring you joy. This thing will gratify you. But the Lord says, oh, it's a big lie. I will gratify you. I know what's right for you. Do not do that thing or you will suffer. You will be in pain. So these wicked resistors, as we saw last week, say, really, heck no, we won't go. And they might have used a different phrase, but isn't appropriate from the pulpit. <laughs> wicked resistors were deeply entrenched, deeply determined and rooted, strong and fierce and intimidating. And they said, we're not going anywhere. And they said, we'll fight you to the death. And Israel said, eight of the 12 tribes, well, if you put it that way, pull up a chair and sit down and stay a while. Now, that is just not the thing we're supposed to do with our Canaanites and our Perizzites and our Amorites, because we all have them. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. And it survives. Your sinful nature survives your conversion. And in your heart lives the Amorite and the Hittite and the Canaanite. And they must be subdued and put to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pride and lust and greed and self-centeredness and spiritual and physical laziness. Anger, a critical spirit, divisiveness unforgiveness, stubbornness, a desire to do my own thing, drugs and alcohol, gossip, envy and jealousy. These are all sexual promiscuity. These are all Canaanites in the land that God said, drive them out. It says right there in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death. Whatever things belong to your sinful nature, whether it be sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, or greed, which of course amounts to idolatry, because of these behaviors, the wrath of God is coming. So it's a very clear picture. 
God gives you an inheritance. You have a life. God's got new life in you, but you've got the Canaanites living there with you and eight of the 12 Christians around you have decided it's all right. They serve a purpose. If I mostly obey, I'll be okay. And that was Israel's fatal flaw. In verse 2, you know, when they disobey, here comes the voice, as it always will. Um, why? I, I've kept my bargain to you. I've done a lot for you. And I'm quoting from your text. I busted you out of Egypt. Don't you remember the mud? Don't you remember the way Pharaoh treated you? Don't you remember how terrible it was to have no God and no hope in this world? To be all, all alone? Can't you remember that? I kept my bargain with you. So he says, why? There in the opening verses, and I, I came up with five reasons to answer him back. When he asks you, why have you done this? I, I've got five answers, and let's be honest and tell him. Number one, because I want my way more than I want yours. Number two, because I love sin more than I love you. Number three, because I believe I can get away with it. Number four, because I think that mostly obeying is good enough. Hello, I'm human. And number five, because I want to take advantage of your kindness. I don't know what, other, what, are, what else are we going to say to him that, that actually is true. Why would you do something? You know better. You've seen me working in your life. Uh, you know the Bible. You have a conscience. I've done a lot for you. Now I'm just asking you a simple question. Why? Why would you do that? There's no other answer than those five things. And I think when we grasp that, maybe that'll help us to change. So who is this talking to them? The angel of the Lord. When it says an angel, it means somebody like Gabriel. The word in the Hebrew for angel is malach, which means messenger. And when it's an angel, it's an angelic being sent to do the work of the Lord. When it says the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's very different. It's a, called a Christophany, and it's an appearance of Jesus before his incarnation. As I've mentioned to you before, before he entered uh, this world through the human womb of Mary. John 1, verse 1, tells us that Jesus existed before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then this Jesus is the one who was with God. John 17, 5, when Jesus is praying, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So we see Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, and he's always existed. He shows up, and he deals with them as the Lord. How do we know it's the Lord Jesus? Well, two things for sure. One, there's a divine claim. I brought you out of Egypt, the angel of the Lord said. No angel brought them out of Egypt, and I promised to give you this land to your forefathers. Well, who was speaking? It was God the Father, really. And now manifested as the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, 
And secondly, the Father in the New Testament is invisible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it says, um, The Lord God is invisible, whom no one, uh, who, he dwells in, in unapproachable light, and whom no one has seen or can see. That's 1 Timothy 6, 16. So God the Father, my friend, is invisible. And it is my opinion that the only God that you will ever lay eyes on ever in all of eternity will be Jesus Christ, period. There will not be a distinction in heaven. When Philip says, show us the Father, he says, "Uh, Philip, how long have I been with you? Still, you don't know. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God, No one has ever seen God, but God, the only one, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so when we say that no man can see God, that is the Father, the Holy Spirit as well. Nobody can see the essence of the spiritual nature of God, but Jesus is the manifestation in form for us to see. And so the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the source of their power, you know, Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's offended. And he says in verse three, I'm pulling the plug now. Now you're going to be defenseless against these things. And you're going to, uh, you're going to be in a lot of pain. And he says, I'm not, verse three, I'm not driving them out anymore. The progress has halted for you. Here come your thorns to help bring you back. Verses four and five, here come the hankies, big crocodile tears, and they're, they're, they weep and they offer sacrifices. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So just because somebody cries doesn't mean anything. It's hopeful. I love to see people crying because I think, wow, bingo, something's happening. But not always. I need to wait a while. After 32 years of doing this, I'm hopeful with the tears, but then I wait. And then sometimes I see the tears were big, fat crocodile tears. They were moved emotionally, but not enough to repent. True repentance is actually doing something about it. Feeling bad, yes. Shedding the tear, yes. But then the evidence that you truly are repenting is is that you renounce that thing and turn completely from it. That is what true repentance is. There's a difference, my friend, between the apostle Peter's tears and Judas's tears. Judas is sad that he got caught. And he has some actions. They look good on the outside, but God knows the heart. He's throwing the money back. He's saying, I've betrayed innocent blood. But then he goes out and hangs himself. Who knows what's going on in the heart, in his heart? That's God's business. But it doesn't look good when Jesus says, it would have been better had he never been born. There's a lot of crying. There's a lot of emoting, and they do that. They're at Bokim, 
And it's nice to see it, and it's nice to see them right there in your text turning to uh, offer sacrifices, which is what we should do. They did the right thing in verse 5. They offer the sacrifices, and any awareness of our sin always drives us to God's appointed sacrifice. In their day, that meant sin offerings of bulls and rams, and in our day, it means remembering God's sacrifices on the cross for us. True repentance is this. You feel sad because you've hurt your friend, your father. You confess your sins. You renounce them. You look to the cross. You're encouraged to know, I'm paid for. I'm bought. He loves me. My forgiveness is real. And then there's a complete turning away from the sin. Well, okay, so this would start the... Uh, cycle of sin again. Let's continue to take a big chunk now after Joshua had dismissed the crying, sniveling Israelites. They went to take possession of the land. Now we're going to just sum up how the book of uh, Joshua is going to go. Judges, rather. They went each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance. Verse 10, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals, is the way you're supposed to pronounce Baal. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. That is not very smart. Verse 13. Because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to the raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. He's keeping his promise there. They were in great distress. So say, okay, so Roman numeral number two, be careful what you ask for. Uh, God's best strategy, it seems sometimes to win us back to him and back to our senses is to give us what our rebellious, stubborn hearts want. And then in the trouble and the consequences that that brings, it usually does its work and brings us back. The prodigal son He gets the inheritance without a struggle. Uh, The friends use and abuse him, and he spends all his money. He winds up lonely, hurting, in a big pile of (laughs) poo-poo. I don't know what else to call it, but it smells really bad in the pig pen. Verses 6 through 10 says that now this when Joshua and his contemporaries pass from the scene, the new generation really accelerate down 
the highway there to destruction. And so when the pastor's away, the rebels will play. Uh, you can be encouraged by someone else's faith, but you can't live on someone else's stories. You can't live on someone else's studies and prayer and someone else's Bible knowledge and miracles. You will need your own. And you know what was happening? They were looking at Joshua and all his contemporaries. And while they were alive, it was like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, they were all excited about it. But they uh, definitely were having some issues <laughs> behind me, <laughs> to my left. Um, and because they were having their issues, um, I've lost my place now. And I'm going to blame them. What was I talking about? God, the Israelites. <laughs> oh, there we go. All right, the new generation. And so, yeah, they're like, this is cool, Joshua and all the leaders. And they're living their life by watching them but not participating. And that's a real problem. When, when your faith is based on other people and their walk with God, your parents, your pastors, your Bible heroes, whatever, that's what was going on. So verse 10, the next generation grows up. Uh, they neither know the Lord, your text says there, and they neither know what had been done for Israel. No personal relationship with God themselves, no personal awareness of uh, his power. True Christianity is not biologically transmitted. It must be caught, not so much taught, by each new generation, by the new generation having their own personal relationship with God and seeing his works on their behalf now, who's to blame here? Sometimes it's neglectful parents, and sometimes it's the rebellious children. Uh, the outcome is the same. The torch has been dropped. It's either dropped by mom and dad, or it's dropped by the child. But either way, it's dropped. And in this case, by the way, the first generation never gets a bad rap from the Lord. So it looks like they are the ones who forsake the second generation, have the knowledge, but they decide we're not going to go down the way that mom and dad, that path, we're going to go our own way. And so they forsake, in verse 12, they forsake the God of their parents and they opt for the gods of their neighbors. You see, it really has to happen in a kid's heart, the next generation's heart. And if that doesn't happen, there's no amount of talking or sermonizing that will fix that. Parents, mom and dad, do everything you can to put that child in a position where they can have a lightning strike by the living God in their heart and life. In other words, uh, do your best to live Christ out in front of them, teach them the scriptures, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Do your best, send them to the best camps available and the homeschool them or Christian school them, do what you need to do, and then let God do his work in them. That is what is going to save them. They are not going to be saved by uh, having mom and dad's Jesus. They have to find their own. Amen? Amen. One of the uh, most precious memories to me 
is um, our son, Zachary, when he was about 16, he went down to Green Valley Bible Conference Camp, a Calvary Chapel big youth camp. And he had a very trying experience. Uh, he had a crush on a girl for quite a long time since they were little kids. And things were getting serious now that they were 16. They were at the camp, and something happened, and he came home, and he called his youth pastor at the time, Jacob Beckman, and mom and dad. And it's moving to me to talk about it. And he settled us in the living room, and he said, I want to tell you what happened to me at camp. And we were pretty nervous because he's called this meeting. So the youth pastor comes over, we sit down, and he says, I want to tell you, and he starts to get emotional. And I'm just waiting for who knows what. And he says, I heard the Lord speak to me. I was through a Bible study, and I couldn't shake what the pastor was saying. Get ready for this thing that's coming. Get ready. Something's going to happen. I didn't know what it was. I, I, I went outside, and I was praying and thinking. And I just felt like something's going to happen. Brace yourself. Something's going to happen. And then she came up to me, and she said, it's not working out for me. I don't have the same feelings for you that you have for me. And then I saw her walk away, and all the rest of the camp, she was with another guy. And everywhere I went, I saw them together, laughing and having a good time. And I had her picture in my wallet, and my heart set for years. But I heard the Lord say, get ready. I'm with you. Something's going to happen. And then I saw it happen. And I, the only way that I could really survive that was knowing, wow, God spoke to me. He prepared me. He saw that coming. And, he, he, and he's telling it with tears. And we're all crying. And I, and I just thought, bingo. He got the lightning strike. Now our Jesus is his Jesus. It's his faith now. God has spoken to him, and he's alive, and he's heard the Lord, and now God answers his prayers and is his comfort. You know, parents, put your kid in positions where God can strike. I mean, wet him down with a hose and put a rod of metal in his hand on a stormy day and put him on the roof. If that's what it takes. And that's really what we're trying to do. Well, this next generation, they said, you know what, mom and dad, Yahweh was your God. You know what? We like Baal and we like Eshtaroth. Baal was the male God of the time, and Eshtaroth was his lover, his goddess. And together, when they got together, they brought your blessing. And so let me tell you, Baal. But all the attraction to him was he was the god over weather and nature for the Canaanites. He was essentially the agricultural god. 
In an agricultural society, people served Baal because they wanted good weather for abundant crops and flocks. The bottom line for worshiping Baal was personal wealth, money. Ashtoreth. Why would they like Ashtoreth? Well, she was the goddess of love, sex, and fertility. She was usually worshipped by having sex with a priestess who was a prostitute at the temple shrine. The bottom line for Ashtoreth was sex, love, and romance. Hmm. Two gods, the worship of money and the worship of sex. Too bad we can't relate to these Old Testament <laughs> passages very well. Well, the Bible says that, verse 12, they forsook God. They were just thinking, oh, we haven't forsaken the Lord. We're just kind of assimilating a few things around us. We're not, God sees it. Look, you either love me at one master or you forsake me. That's the way it goes. And then verse 12, God sells them as one sells a slave. Romans chapter 6 says, don't you know when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's verse 16. And so the Lord is saying, look, I, I'm giving you over to this thing, and this thing is now going to be your God, and you're not going to like how this God treats you. The crops fail, the rains stop, the flocks miscarry, the Canaanites turn on them, their relationships go sour. There's nothing like when the paycheck uh, isn't there to get your attention. And that's so true. C.S. Lewis's remarks, you know, I say it all the time. God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he shouts to us in our pain. So here come the painful tears, great distress in verse 15. They do evil. The Lord allows the enemy to prevail. The thorns come. They cry out in distress. He raises up a judge, which he will do. You'll meet the, the first one coming up here in chapter 3 and uh, next week. And then uh, he delivers them. Paul talks about this merry-go-round of sin for us in Romans 7. And it might be interesting for you to note that he uses me, myself, and I in Romans 7 28 times. In Romans 8, he uses spirit and God 28 times. So really what we see there is if you want a life of constant sin cycle where you get complacent and you compromise, you disobey, and he punishes you, or he allows, rather, your um, foolish will to be done and the consequences of that will to, to afflict you, and then he raises up salvation, and then you do it again. If you want to get out of that, you go to Romans 8, whereby the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live romans chapter 8 verse 13 let's finish the chapter and we have to read the first six verses of the next one because it's one section then the lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders so here's the cycle Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. 
Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemy as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Verse 20. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. One through six, and we'll be done. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not previous, who had not previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains and from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Roman numeral number three, the lifelong struggle. These pockets of resistors are allowed to remain, but they are useful to him. Now in closing, we're going to see a little mystery revealed. It tells you right here why God allows those nations to remain in the land of their inheritance. And the spiritual application for you tonight is why God allows you to daily have to wrestle it out with your own Canaanites in your own heart because all of us have besetting sins. Now, sometimes when the phone rings, we answer it. Sometimes God instantaneously heals somebody and takes out a Canaanite, just boom, done. I've, I've seen this with alcoholics. I've seen this uh, with people with anger problems, boom, done. And mostly, I see that God works in our hearts gradually, like your text says. He did not drive them out at once. He did it gradually, and then that he allowed them to remain. So like the psalmist says, why do I have to wrestle every day with these same thoughts? And, and God, where are you in all of this? And why aren't I healed? And why aren't I a better Christian? And how, after all these years, can I still have that, still, that Canaanite voice and longing still there that I've got to battle down until the day I die? Why? And he answers it in this text. He says, number one, 
These are perfect testing grounds to determine your allegiance. He says, I'm testing Israel. That's in your text. He says, I'm allowing that to test you. I'm giving you a choice. You are going to show me. Is it the Canaanite in your heart that you love or is it the Holy Spirit that you love? And you will live with that tension until the day you die. He lets them live in our hearts. He says, I'll give you the power to put them to death. You can reckon them dead. I give you the power over them. But the second you start skipping church, the second you stop reading your Bible, the second you stop worshiping and you start listening to all kinds of stuff, the second you start hanging out with bad company, boom, that Canaanite comes back to life. Why? That's a question. People have that problem. And he says right here, I am teaching these new generation who have no, quoting the text, has no experience with warfare. He's got to teach them how to fight, how to struggle. It's very important. Just doesn't wave a magic wand and say, okay, you're saved. You're never going to have a bad thought again. You will have to learn and grow and exercise and train to boot camp all your life. Every single day, a Canaanite will put a thought in your head from your own heart talking too much, or being greedy or self-centered, or being rude or unkind. And every day, you've got to wrestle that down. He says, you've got to learn how to fight. You've got to make some choices. These are things now, you know, how funny that God can use a Canaanite to punish them and to teach them. That's what he's doing. He teaches us through those terrible things. God doesn't just instantly change every area of our lives so that our relationship with him can be proved and improved and so that we will live a life of true partnership with God and feel our desperate need. Man, I have told people in my office who have had tears streaming down their cheeks saying, this is an unbelievable struggle that I have to live with. It's a besetting sin that will not go away. And I say, how blessed are you? A lot of people, because of their even-keeled disposition, don't realize their desperation. But you have to live a fanatical, devoted Christian life. What a blessing to have to bear a cross like you bear. Because, brother, you've got to wake up and hit your knees on the floor. You've got to start your day in the Bible and have it during the day. You've got to seek the Lord at night before you go to bed. You can't watch a lot of TV. You can't listen to a lot of secular music out there. You've got to watch who you uh, spend time with. You've got to be in church a lot with that kind of issue. That issue will never go away. What a gift to you. The rest of us need Christ in just the most desperate way but we don't realize it. You are blessed. And they always say the same thing. Well, I wish you could be as blessed as much as I am right now. Or can God just give his blessing to somebody else? <laughs> yeah, no, he doesn't. He knew. Hello, he doesn't. 
He doesn't give crosses out in life and go, whoa, whoops, I, I gave you the wrong cross. I, I thought it was meant for the baby in the next incubator. You know, he doesn't do that. He measured everything out and he said, this cross is so perfectly suited for you. This is what you needed. This is what brought you to me. This is what keeps you on your knees. This is what keeps you humble and thirsting and longing and useful. And what a testimony you have because of that thing. Last little illustration. Um, Jay Stapleton, who founded, um, church planted Calvary Petaluma back in the early 90s or the mid-90s, I should say. His mom just went to be with the Lord last week, Linda Stapleton. We were good friends. We were having cancer-related chemotherapy at the same time, she and me. And we used to pray for each other. When we both lost our hair, mine never grew back, hers did. She had a wig, and you know we were playing around, and I wanted to wear her wig. It was, just, it was really a fun time. You had to be there. <laughs> Well, one of the testimonies at her memorial service on this last Sunday, very interesting. The last few days, very weak, kind of gasping and holding on. She was singing hymns and praising God, and she made this comment. She said, I only have a few more days to praise God in my adversity. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go out praising. I only have, a, I'll never have this opportunity again for where I'm going. There's no more opportunity to use faith. Now, I'm elaborating now, but where we're going, faith is unnecessary because every eye shall see him. And there is no adversity and there's no opportunity there for us to say, even though I can't see you, and even though I'm in a lot of pain, and even though I've got 10 Canaanites screaming, let me take control of the helm, I will not. I will praise God, and I will be true to you to the end. You will not have that opportunity there. You only have that here. And she got it, and she goes, wow, these are the last few moments I get to just kind of do this for him. And I'm going to do it. And she sang, and she worshiped, and she praised, and she was a blessing all the way to her last breath. Because she realized, it's a limited time. You've got to cross the bear. You've got some Canaanites to kill, kill, execute, annihilate by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you only have this life to do it. In the next life, done. There are no Canaanites there. They don't get in past the gate. Just those who do God's will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these lessons the Israelites are teaching us. We look to you now for the grace to grab on to the truth that you've revealed to each heart tonight, to put it into practice and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.